You know, sometimes when we go traveling, we do it with family, we do it with friends. Might be business partners, too. Sometimes we might find ourselves traveling alone. At least we think we're alone, but if we're on a plane, you know, there is the pilot, and there are the flight attendants, too. So whether you're traveling with family or friends or or whether you're just by yourself, you realize there's certain responsibilities or roles that you have to do. Like maybe you're the driver, or maybe you're the backseat driver. Maybe you're the navigator. If you're uh, on a plane, uh, you're not really traveling alone. You know, that pilot, he's got his responsibilities, and uh, the flight attendants have theirs too. So we're never really traveling alone, and we have a responsibility. Well, this summer, as a series of messages, we're talking about traveling, and today we want to talk about the people that we travel with, and we want to look at the different um, opportunities or responsibilities we have. But, you know, it's not just taking those trips. We're talking about this road that God has given us to travel on we call life. There are people that we travel with in life. Family, friends, co-workers, fellow students, neighbors, fellow church members. And we have certain responsibilities or job duties when we do that traveling as well. So as we continue with our series of messages entitled Discovering God's Road for Our Life and Traveling on It, today we want to talk about companions. Now last week we talked about traveling from the perspective of how God maps out our life. That is how he has put everything together. And and just like we might use a, a GPS system when we do our traveling God has a GPS system he uses too. His grace, his providence, all for salvation. And as God maps out our life, we see that there are certain people he has put in our life too. We can call them travel companions or companions in Christ. Today, let's look about that companionship as we travel. Our series of messages is based on the life of King David from the Old Testament. Last week we saw how God had mapped out his life, how he had guided him as a young shepherd boy to become a trainee, so to speak, working under King Saul, and how he had used his gifts to prepare him to be the leader of the people of Israel. Well, today we're going to take another look at a segment of David's life and see some of the people that were there, and one in particular whose name was Jonathan. I'll tell you more about him in just a minute. But it's interesting to note that David, who wrote, you know, a lot of the Psalms, gave us a little perspective about the people that are in his life. From Psalm 133, which was called a Song of Ascents, it meant the people were ascending up the mountain, Jerusalem, to go worship God. He looked around and he saw his fellow worshipers and he said this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. What did David see? Let's take a look at the close relationship that David had with a friend whose name was Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. 
Now, in those days, you know, it was kind of the way that if your dad was the king, you're probably going to be the next king. And so Jonathan, perhaps, is thinking he's going to be the next king. But onto the scene comes David. And David had just defeated that giant Philistine called Goliath. Jonathan was so in awe of what David did that he came and bowed down before David, gave him his sword, his shield, his robe, his tunic, his belt, all as a way to honor him and to recognize that David is going to be the next king, not Jonathan. Now, David David and Jonathan had formed such a close relationship that the Bible describes it this way. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. There was no jealousy, there was no uh, envy or vying to get a higher position, but they regarded each other as brothers, companions in faith. Now, because of David's great heroic success against the giant Goliath, the people were just praising David for what he had done. And and King Saul got kind of jealous about that. All the attention's going to David and not to me. And we see that sometimes in politicians, huh? In fact, it got so bad that the evil spirit that had overtaken Saul moved him to try to kill David. But Jonathan steps in. The scriptures tell it this way. And and I'll use this phrase to describe their friendship. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Let's see how that plays out. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and I'll tell you what I find out. Now, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Sounds good, doesn't it? What we see here was this act of friendship or companionship, where one will step in for the other, defending the name and the well-being of others. That's what Jonathan was doing. Defending David's name and reputation and his well-being, protecting him from those death threats. It's one thing companions will do for others. Defend them, support them. Now, it sounds like everything is really okay, right? No, that evil spirit in Saul takes over 
And Saul determines that he's going to kill David. A tries several times, even makes attempts to kill his own son, Jonathan. David saw this, and here's how he responded. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Wow, what commitment. But, he said, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. There again, you see how Jonathan steps in to save the day, so to speak, but also asks for a commitment from David. You know, back then it was, if a new king took over, that new king may want to wipe out anybody left over from the previous king's family so that he knew his position was secure. Jonathan wanted to make sure that wouldn't happen to his family, so he asked David to make that oath to show the loving kindness of the Lord toward him and his family, and David did. What this demonstrates for us is this. That in our companionship with one another, we want to take all of our situations and commit them to the Lord for his care. And that was done. And David was protected for many years as Saul tried in many different ways to assassinate David. The Lord always protected him. Well, finally, there was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites and the Philistines won. They killed Jonathan. King Saul recognized that he probably would be captured and killed, and so he took his own life into his own hands, and he killed himself. Now one might look at that and think, ah, now David is free, right? His enemy who's trying to kill him is gone. David probably would be rejoicing, but that wasn't the case. David didn't rejoice in the death of Saul or Jonathan. David had recognized that Saul was God's anointed one to be the king, and he always respected him. Even though they had a difference in opinions, he always showed respect to Saul as the king. David called for a national day of mourning, but he did even more than that. David wanted to know if there was anybody left in Jonathan's family because he wanted to show kindness to him. And there was somebody who was left. Jonathan had a little boy by the name of Mephibosheth. Like that name? Mephibosheth. When Jonathan was killed, Mephibosheth's nanny grabbed him and was running to hide. But she dropped the little boy injured him in his legs, and he could no longer walk regularly. He was crippled. David heard that Mephibosheth was still alive, and he summoned that Mephibosheth would come and live in his palace and dine regularly at the king's feast with all of his generals and advisors, all these guys who were duded out in fancy clothes and armor. And here sat this little boy, maybe with his crutches, 
with a tablecloth covering over them, enjoying the blessings of the king. David was simply reflecting in action the grace and the blessings of God to us. That's what companionship in Christ is like. Now, as endearing as that story might be to us, there's one that's even better, and that's Jesus, who is a companion for all of us. Jesus came seeking us, trying to find us who ran away, who rejected him, who were wandering off. He was calling us to be with him. And and though we in our rebellious ways would reject him, Jesus would pray. Jesus would pray for his enemies. Jesus even prayed asking forgiveness for those who were killing him because he wanted them. That's companionship. Jesus laid down his life for all of his enemies, for all of us so that all of us in our rebellious ways have been forgiven. He took up that life again to assure us that there is salvation for all of us because of what he has done. And now Jesus forgives us of our sins and calls us to come to him. He invites us to his banquet. He invites us to sit down and to dine with him to rejoice in the blessings that he has given us and to know that all of our imperfections have been covered over by the cloth of his grace. Friends, if you want to know about companionship, that's it right there in Jesus. And that's the kind of companionship that God has called us to be in also. What I'd like to highlight now is just a a few keys or characteristics of Christian companionship. Starting with the words that we heard a few minutes ago from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He said, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul characterizes our companionship as a partnership. Now, when we think of a partnership, we think of you know, people who have formed some kind of a business relationship, and they maybe have some agreements between them as far as what they're going to do. But I want to give you a little different perspective on this partnership we have in Christ. Did you know that the word partners is also a nautical term, a sailing term? It's a term that's used to describe the, the planks that are in a ship that, are, that go from one side to the other, and they're used to support that mast. They're called partners. And they're always spoken of in the plural. There's not just one partner. There's many partners. They're all working together. And what's interesting about those planks is they're underneath the deck. You don't see them, but they're there. They're doing their job. They're giving the support that's needed for that ship. That's the kind of partnership we are in, together, supporting, even if it's not seen. It's that partnership that we have, that unity that we have, based on our faith 
in Christ. A partnership in the gospel, Paul said. Now, this partnership has certain characteristics to it. And Paul is going to go on and list five of them. I'm going to give those to you and briefly describe them and see then how we are to live those partnerships out as we are traveling through life. Traveling as, as family members, as friends, as fellow church members, neighbors, fellow workers, everything. Here's what Paul would write about this partnership. He said, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another. So as you're traveling, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. All right, so let's take a look at those five things that he's pointing out here. The first was encouragement. He said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and we do have encouragement, that word encouragement that he used in the Greek was the word that simply meant you're called alongside somebody. It's a word that was used to describe the Holy Spirit, who's called the paraclete, coming right out of that Greek language. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, and he encourages us. He supports us. He strengthens us, and he guides us. Paul is saying, that's what we are to be a tool, a venue for the Holy Spirit. We see how David and Jonathan were doing that for each other, weren't they? They were there to support each other and defend each other. We see how Jesus has done that for us. We see how Paul was encouraging that among the Philippians. Maybe he was seeing some dissension among this congregation. Maybe he was hearing some fighting that was going on. And he told them to be united, to be encouraging toward one another. He then went on and to say, if you have any comfort from your relationship in Christ, and that word in the Greek, the word comfort means something that you're speaking, that's soothing, that picks somebody up, that cheers them. We can see how Jonathan was doing that with his words, how David was doing that with the Psalms he wrote, how Jesus does that to us with his words of promise, and how we can do that to one another as we share encouraging words of promise from God, and as we point them to talk to the God above. Then Paul went on to say, if you have any common sharing in Christ, that's the word fellowship. And he talked then about showing tenderness and compassion. So what he was saying is, you have a fellowship not just because you uh, belong to this organization, not just because you come and sit in the same room together, but you have something else that unites you. It's your faith and how you exercise that faith. And he was talking about helpfulness. When you can help people in their needs, recognizing what it is, giving them that encouragement and that comfort, directing them in the, in the will and ways of God, and he said to do that with a like mind. 
having the same mind and spirit, being united in your faith in Christ, understanding what God's will is, and wanting to follow his ways. And finally, he said, to do that with a sense of humility, considering the interests and the needs of others before your own needs. Well, with those characteristics, God is calling us to live out our partnership, our companionship as travelers in this life. Now, usually at the end of my messages, I give you some encouragements, and I call it my message, a uh, message for me. Well, I said this summer I'm going to give you some exercises instead of a message, okay? Kind of the same thing. But here's what I want you to do. Look at the people that you travel with in life. Who are they? Identify specifically your family member, your friends, your fellow workers, your fellow church members. And recognize what are their needs? What is their situation? And how can I be a companion to them? Sometimes in the scriptures the phrase was used, we'll extend to them the right hand of fellowship. And so we picture people shaking hands, just like we do when we greet people. We shake hands. Well, let's use the hand and those five fingers, maybe to remind us about those five characteristics of companionship. Think of the thumb, first of all. You know, When we give a thumbs up, <laughs> it means we like something, or we, we're telling people, hey, it's going well, it's going good. So as we shake hands or, or think about using our hands to help somebody, how can you encourage them? with that pointing finger. Use it to point them to the promises of God. Use it to point people to put their trust in God, to seek his blessing in prayer. And then with three fingers, you know, you can do a bunch of things with three fingers. A little hard with just two, but with three fingers, you can do a lot. So that can remind us, be helpful, do something for those who are in need. That fourth finger, that ring finger, that can remind us of uh, the harmony we are to have in our marriages and in our relationships. And so God wants us to have that harmony in our relationships with others, to seek his will and to work together in it. And finally, that little pinky, that little humble pinky, reminds us it's not about us to live in that spirit of humility, looking at the interests of others. There's the right hand of fellowship that we can extend. And when you reflect on the companionship that we have with Christ, you will recognize that's what gives you that companionship with one another. Happy travels.